Hello, and welcome to Project 99. It is Thursday, December 19th, 2019, and uh, we have a show packed for you today. So I'm going to try not to waste time as I am known for doing. So I just want to jump in, first of all, to this um, impeachment bullshit that's <laughs> continuing to go on. Um, because we, we, none of us have heard enough about impeachment this week. Right. So I just, I don't want to even linger on it. All I want to say is that I, I'm, I'm tired of other people and, uh, maybe it's just that winter time, like grumpy, I don't want to leave my house and I hate everyone I come in contact with thing, but (laughs) the stupidity of people around me is starting to get to me a lot more than it typically does. Because if I, if I see one more person posting on Facebook how they think that since Trump is impeached now that that means when he gets reelected in 2020 that his first year was nullified and he can now serve nine terms and they <laughs> genuinely believe that um, I might have to gouge my own eyeballs out so I don't have to read Facebook anymore well I mean you have to understand though that the, the, the impeachment thing has just gotten so out of control the Republicans level of hyperbole is just beyond the pale like they today they compared the impeachment to the crucifixion of jesus christ um the attack of pearl harbor (laughs) and they said the due process was the same as the salem witch trials i mean (laughs) so these are your leaders on the republican party so you can't expect trump supporters online to raise to to rise up to any higher level than that i just (laughs) am genuinely shocked at the willingness that they are to look fucking stupid because <laughs> it, it would literally take you five seconds to google that and, and it's find really out. sad that we don't have civics class in school anymore like nobody even understands it wouldn't matter the they just sleep through it anyway and then they would vote republican and you know just it doesn't matter we don't live in the real world anymore people get to make up their own shit um so that's literally all i have to say about the impeachment because it's just been dominating the media so um no one, for dear God, please no one talk about it at Christmas with your families because someone's going to get carved up like a Christmas ham. So that's my, that's my oh level goodness. of aggravation with this fucking shit this week. So, alrighty, moving on. What do you do got, Do you feel Mick? better now? Yeah, I do. I do feel better. You know what? You have no idea. I was like waiting all day reading this shit to come here and record this so I could just be like, you know what? Y'all well, are done. our audience thanked you for your rant and we thank our audience for listening. <laughs> All right, Mick, so what do you got? So today's episode is going to be about American Empire. And um, I wanted to do this episode because I was thinking about, for some odd reason, I was trying to think about what to talk about this week. And I was recalling um, the morning of 9-11. And, you know, when I was on my way to work, that's when the first plane hit the building when I was on my way to work. And I had to stop at my mom's house to drop off a prescription I had picked up for her. And when I walked into the house, you know, that was right after the second plane had struck. And so she was telling me that, you know, we think, they think it's a terrorist attack. <clears throat> so I went back to the car and turned on the radio. And on my way to work, I was listening to events unfold and all the chaos that was happening. And so when I walked into work, uh, all the people there were unaware that anything had happened. It was the strangest feeling because it was like for that little period of time before I told them that something had happened, like they were in another reality 
I, than yeah, I, I do. Was. You brought that up on another show. I don't know if it was last <clears> week or <throat> week before, but another show you did bring that up about how like when something that massive happens and you see people that don't know yet, yeah. you do legitimately feel right. like it is a splitting moment. Like you are in a completely different world than I. I think right. about that too. Like when, when like a tragedy happens when someone dies. Yes, of course. And it's like because there's your life before that person died and that your life after that right. person died, and so. When you're the one who knows, but nobody else knows, you are literally in a different reality. Yeah, that's crazy. And for something like 9-11 that was a collective, society-wide reality, it was like I had stepped through a door before anyone else had. Well, and I feel like that's an important thing to note, which I know sometimes we dip into a little bit of psychology on the show, but not often, and I'm not going to get off on too much of a tangent on it. But it, it, it is that time of year when people you know, start to get in their feelings and they think about other people for once. So I feel like it's a good time um, to think about a lot of times when something happens to someone else, like, for example, when you're in a different reality because they don't know that, say, 9-11 has just happened. You think about that, and then obviously they find out, and you're all in the same reality. But I think sometimes it's important to realize that people you encounter have gone through things that you right. don't know about, mm -hmm. um, and they are literally in a different reality than you. Sure. Um, and I, I don't know why I was thinking about that last week. I think it this there's this homeless guy that uh, panhandles down here, and somebody mm -hmm. was telling a story about him, like like how he ended up homeless or whatever. And so now when I see him, I look at him different, and it's just like oh, I like feel worse for that guy than mm -hmm. I did previously. But I just think that when you see people day to day, you don't tend to think about that, mm -hmm. you know, like when right. you run into somebody and. You know, they wait They wait on the elevator and wait for you to go up before they get on the elevator. And you're like, wow, what do I stink or something? It's like, well, maybe that person just has, like, a bad experience with that or something. You know what I mean? Right. Like, so I don't know. I know. Weird tangent. But, like, since you said that on the show about living in a different reality than somebody else, I think that all the time mm -hmm. when I see people and how they react in a way that seems strange to me. Mm -hmm. And how I wonder, it's like, what happened to you that makes your reality different than mine? Right. I mean, it's, and it's so many things. Yeah, it's, it's in everything. And if you look for it everywhere, you'll find it everywhere. So right. I just thought that was interesting. Right. But anyway, back to your point. And so when I did tell people at work, you know, we should turn the radio on because something's happening right now. And they did. And so we sat there for the next couple of hours just glued to the radio. And, you know, people were reacting, obviously, very frightened and being emotional and... Um, what I kept hearing people say is, why would anyone want to attack America? What? I mean, they were literally baffled as to why, like, we're the good guys. Like, we go all over the world and spread democracy and save people from evil dictators. And why would anyone want to attack us? And so my extended feeling of being in a different reality, it was, a, it was I guess from that moment on, I realized that people there are a lot of people who legitimately just have a different concept of what America is than what I do. And yeah, you mean the difference between people who believe the propaganda and those who don't? I mean, right. And but to them, it's it's not even as if they understand. I mean, I guess that's the whole point of propaganda. But it's our entire educational system, the media, everything has been constructed so that we have this very two dimensional kind of innocent view of America like this is what America is and of course at the time 9-11 happened um, I've, I've learned a lot more th uh, things about America since then 
but uh, at the time I at least knew about a lot of propaganda in our media about Israel and the Palestinian conflict and because I was researching that in college and you know just uh, a lot of historical things like the Bay of Pigs invasion like Operation Northwood I knew a lot of like government operations that had happened that other people weren't aware of so you know but I, I guess I just really feel like I'm a patriot and I believe in America and I believe in all the like the Declaration of Independence you know I I've used to, I spent so much time like just memorizing like the first section of it because it really is near and dear to my heart I'm, I really am a patriot but when I read history American history the way that it's always been controlled and dictated by corporations from it, the it's, beginning it's really funny that people talk about the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution in the sense that oh these things are still important and we still have to base our day-to-day American lives around these things but it's like if you look throughout history and the way our country has been re- been run you know we basically stomped all over and shit all over those and it, if if we have to to get you know exactly what we want right. I mean just in the sense what we were talking about last week of felons not being able to vote or have guns mm-hmm. I mean taxation without representation and right to bear arms there's two right there that it's like mm-hmm. clear violation that people argue all the time um, but there, I mean there's just so many things right I mean and I mean we we know that the fact that when the, when the founding fathers formed the country that it said all men are created equal but like everybody couldn't vote <laughs> right women couldn't vote blacks couldn't vote so I mean it was a it was flawed right from the beginning but I guess just kind of learning about the role because we kind of we kind of tend to think that corporations and oligarchy and all these word buzzwords are happening right now uh, especially with Bernie running and talking a lot about corporatism that this is somehow a new phenomena that's that's ruining our democracy money and politics and all these things and it literally is woven into the very fabric of America and um, so that's kind of what I wanted to touch on today is that um, America spreading its empire throughout the world <laughs> in some pretty not nice ways. So I went back and the there's a really good book by Stephen Kinzer called Overthrow. And it covers the United States government has been involved in <clears throat> the overthrow or attempted overthrow of 81 different countries around the world. <laughs> 81 and not all those were successful, and not all, not all of them were even followed through all the way. Some of them just involved bribes to other governments, uh, financial assistance to rebel groups. Uh, they weren't full-on coups. And his book kind of focuses on the more overt uh, coups that we were involved in. But one of the more surprising ones, and one of the, fir- the, the first one, as far as I'm aware, that happened was when we overthrew the independent kingdom of Hawaii. And we're so used to thinking of Hawaii as being a state that, you know, if you say to people, well, we, we overthrew the government of Hawaii, they would kind of look at you funny like, what? What are you talking about? It's part of our government. Um, but there were kind of three different, like, sections like, or, or segments, phases, if you will, of American imperialism. And the first one was was open imperialism, which... In the beginning, I mean, it was kind of cool to be an imperialist, like the British Empire, the French Empire, the Spanish Empire. And so America, you know, we, we 
the United States originally threw off the British Empire and decided we were going to try something different here. But it wasn't too long before, you know, we started to venture off and, and want to have like colonies and, and become an empire. And um, so during that first phase, um, it was kind of pretty much open imperialism. We just went places and, you know, took over things. And then there was the covert action imperialism, what I call it, which was after World War One, whenever it wasn't really cool to be an empire anymore, and it wasn't really cool to go and, you know, we had that we were there was the UN, and after World War One, we weren't going to have any more wars. Everybody was going to talk out their differences. There was going to be no more aggression, military military aggression for the purpose of taking over. Play there was that was all going to be in the past after World War One, and uh, so it, you had to if you wanted to do that now, you had to do kind of do it covertly. And then there's a third phase, what I call is the justified uh, imperialism. And I guess there were always people that tried to justify, you know, us doing it in the past. But uh, it seems a lot more open now with multinational corporations that don't have allegiance to any particular country spreading out. And yet they dominate through, you know, money and politics, all the countries they're involved in. It's gotten really kind of a tangled up mess, but um, so first we'll just go ahead and start with uh, with Hawaii. So Hawaii was an independent sovereign kingdom uh, when it was first encountered by the United States. It had its own rulers, uh, which was a monarchical system. They made treaties around the world with other governments. I mean, they were not that the Native Americans when we came here weren't, you know. A, a sovereign people in the sense that they had the right to live as they lived but they didn't have the kind of like Hawaii had a really structured you know government um, the first whites that came in contact with with Hawaii was actually in in way back in uh, James Cook was a an English explorer who encountered them and <clears throat> I think it was like the 1700s or something but it's kind of a brief contact and did the same thing that all white explorers do, expose the natives to diseases they weren't able to fend off and <laughs> almost wiped out the population from disease. And then, you know, later on missionaries. <laughs> so we come with the white people come with the disease first, right? To, to wipe out your population. And then secondary follow-up to that is religious colonization. So missionaries came to Hawaii around the 1820s and, um, there was a particular family, the Hiram Bingham family, and uh, and a lady by the name of Lucy Thurston, and, and of course some other people on, on the ship. That was the first families that kind of went over as missionaries, and um, they introduced the idea of private property to the to the Hawaiians, which most Native cultures don't have a concept of private property. They just they're very communal and they share, and they don't fence their fields, and they don't. You know, it's not like mine is mine and stay away from me. Like, here's my no trespassing. Like, they don't get that concept. Oh, but without boundaries and lines between <laughs> what's mine, how will we capitalize off of that and therefore create two cultures, one that exploits the other? Exactly. However, Very would good, you do Jude. that? Very good. Very good. <laughs> so, yeah, so they introduced the whole idea of private property and they ended up, like, buying and leasing properties for these churches and missions and everything. And then the next thing that they did which is, what's the next thing missionaries always do? Destroy the culture. So they banned the way that Hawaiians uh, natively dressed because it was, it was just vulgar and, you know, over-sexualized and disgusting. 
Um, they weren't allowed to dance. They weren't allowed to speak their own language. Um, so pretty much they destroyed their culture. And I'm sorry if that offends anybody, but that's that's too bad because that's that's been the history and pattern of, you know, religious colonization. Now, they think they're yeah, saving which, these I mean, people I, from hell. I, I understand say, like, that. But. Um, I know this, this will definitely offend someone, but I'm kind of one of those people that thinks cultural appropriation is a load of horse shit. Have you heard of this? Yes. Like, you can't wear moccasins because that's appropriating Native Americans and, like, white people can't have dreads because that's appropriating African Americans and, like, all this shit. And I'm just like, first of all, I don't even know how you can prove that these very specific things came from specific cultures. Like, maybe certain things, yeah, you can be Mm -hmm. like, 100%, that's where it came from. But, like, a lot of this stuff is up in the air. You know what I mean? Like, did Vikings have dreads? Did Nordics have dreads? Did black people really be the first ones to come up with dreads? Maybe they were Egyptians. Like, we don't know. But all these people argue over this shit, and I'm like... Well, I will say the first case that I really heard about of cultural appropriation was the Victoria's Secret model that was wearing an Indian headdress. The Native American headdress, yes. Okay, which, that is a particular symbol in our culture that to them is kind of like a purple heart. So it's a symbol of a warrior that you earn for a particular act of bravery. So to see some chick strutting around with it on her head was, like, insulting to them. I guess the same way that, like, when they strut around girls on Halloween dress up as army soldiers and they got all the fake medals. I mean, you know what I mean? Nothing is sacred in America. We make fun of and appropriate literally everything that comes from everywhere. It's not like we're just singling things out. So I feel like the whole cultural appropriation argument is bullshit. But in instances like this, I, I, I get it. It was like reverse, the, though. It I, wasn't like they were they were forcing the appropriation. Yeah, but no, I mean, what I mean is, I get the aggravation, like in Hawaii, where they they weren't even allowed to speak their own language right. anymore. Right. Um, and then people who do have native Hawaiian, you know, can trace it back that their families were affected by this kind of shit. You know, see mainland people like wearing Hawaiian skirts and like the mm-hmm. you know what I mean. I can see how they're just like. Your ancestors slaughtered my ancestors. <laughs> yeah, well, now oppressed. You're, right. you, your ancestors oppressed my ancestors, and now you wear grass skirts on my land. Like, right. I get that, but I don't know. At the same time, I just feel like there's just I, – I feel like we use a lot of shit as an excuse to play victim anymore, and it's like – Nothing nothing in our culture is sacred. We make right. fun of everything. <clears throat> well, I mean, and I used to be told that the Watch greatest- Family Guy. They literally – well, Family Guy's I a mean, bad example. I mean, South Park, Family Guy, li- turn on anything on TV. We Religion is not sacred. Uh, you know what I mean? We, we make fun of everything. Yeah. So I guess I just, it just seems like nonsense to me. Like, with all the shit, the horrible, horrible shit that goes on in the world, are you really angry at someone for having dreadlocks? <laughs> well, I used to be told that the, um, you know, the highest form of, of flattery is imitation right well and that's what i'm saying like if you do it as an, in an insulting way like how people have right. done black i mean face, that's what i thought that is appropriation was that it was in some kind of way that's cheapening it or insulting it or something but if you literally just like the culture of another people and you wear like a shirt that's got patent navajo patterns on it like i don't think that that should be considered like insulting right yeah I mean, well I and that's, get that. that's the awful part of it too is because it has turned into you know I can see if someone was appropriated a way that is disrespectful and people were upset, like people who are genuinely affected by it were upset, not just randoms that pick it up on the internet that have no reason to be upset about it at all. Then I could see some 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 kind of value to it, but it's not. It's just another one of those social justice things to attack another person over mm-hmm. nothing. I you think know? people really need to look 
there was a photo the other day act to the intention yes exactly i mean there's so many things like that in our culture too we need to look at the intention you know what i mean it's just there was a lady the other day who uh she was in some middle eastern country i don't remember where the post said she was but someone said she was cultural appropriate being you know appropriating their culture or whatever because she was wearing a hijab Mm -hmm. and i was like as far as i'm aware even if you're not a part of their culture, when you're there, you still have required. to wear that. Right, yeah. yeah. So I'm like, how are they? Like, at this point, you're the uneducated moron because now you're trying to shame somebody for dressing a certain way, saying it's cultural appropriation when it's when literally it's required by law. When it's right. required by law. Yeah, journalists and stuff that go to like Saudi Arabia and different places there. I think that's where it was, Saudi yeah. Arabia. But yeah, so rant on that again. Sorry for another inputting <laughs> rant. This is, I've been on one this week. No, that's fine. So um, Hawaii, like I said, was independent culture. And then the the missionaries came. Okay, the missionaries came and they um, they pretty much tried to convert all of the native ways to Christian ways and norms and all those things. And whitewashed it. They whitewashed them. And then uh, a church was founded in Honolulu in 1836. And uh, whites that lived there began to... um, you know, become part of the Hawaiian culture. They had children there. I doubt there was much mingling as far as like interracial marrying, but the children who were born to these missionaries were considered to be native born Hawaiians because they were born there. Uh, They would oftentimes return to the United States to be educated and then they would come back to Hawaii. And over time, you know, they, they acquired land. They bought up a lot of land uh, and then they started to grow sugar there. <clears throat> and so over between 1874 and 1891, the non-natives uh, became the, the minority, actually became the most economically dominant uh, people in Hawaii. And they began to influence slash co-opt the monarchy, monarchy of Hawaii and kind of pressure them in the same way that our you know, wealthy Americans here pressure politicians to get their way about different things. So the king at that time was, uh, and forgive me if I don't say this right, but King Kalakua, and uh, these business people con- uh, convinced him to cede away the rights to Pearl Harbor and also to sign free trade agreements with the United States that helped the sugar planters to, um, you know, t- to boost their business. And... Um, they came to control about four-fifths of all of the arable land of Hawaii, these sugar plant- plantation owners. Uh, but that wasn't good enough for them. <laughs> Never is. Never no, enough. it wasn't good enough for them. So under threat of force, they basically told the monarch that they were going to rewrite the Constitution. And they call this the Bayonet Constitution because it was literally forced upon the monarchy there. Uh, and it and it caused the monarchy to be reduced to just more or less like a figurehead. So the the constitution said that the parliament they developed would now have all the authority, and the monarchy was pretty much irrelevant. Um, and then they also gave whites more voting rights than the native Hawaiians, and the Asian immigrants they had brought in they imported uh, Japanese uh, and Chinese workers as their slave labor so there was a mixture there of 
of Asians working in the sugar fields. And what year did you say this was? This was between 1874 and 1891. Okay. So then the king, who they had pretty much usurped, he dies in 1891. And his sister, Lilio Kalani, uh, became the queen. And, you know, she looks around and is like, hey, you know, this is kind of bogus. Uh, the natives are, have no less rights than, than the whites. And uh, she decides she's going to make a new constitution to give the natives more rights uh, to replace this bayonet constitution. And it's going to restore the monarch's power. And she decides that she's only going to give Hawaiians the, the right to vote. Um, so after she goes to the legislature, and of course they turn down her <laughs> proposition to give her her, her power back, uh, she plans to just enact it by kind of like presidential directive, but like it was royal fiat. She was just going to sign it into law like, hey, too bad, I'm the queen and this is how it is. Well, her ministers came to her and were like, yeah, this probably isn't a good idea. You should probably back down. These people aren't going to like it. So she did kind of rescind the idea, but by that time it was already too late because the businessmen were like, listen, this queen lady is like starting to act like she's running the place. We don't like it. And they started a plot to overthrow her so she discovers the plot and she tries to have them arrested but uh the legislature says she doesn't have the authority to arrest them so i mean it's kind of like they're all there in this area and they're like no i'm in charge no i'm in charge um now one of the conspirators was actually the u.s minister to why his name was john steve john stevens and what he did was he ordered a nearby naval ship I think it was the Boston maybe USS Boston but anyways he orders it to pull up close to the shore um, and kind of to kind of give a more overt threat and then and also to kind of protect them in case the Hawaiians attacked them for plotting this coup which was now out in the open can you just imagine though if if some other people or some other country just came to america and was just like we don't believe in your laws now like we're gonna we're take you we're gonna, we're gonna just do what we want now <laughs> like yeah like you know how republicans are afraid that muslims and stuff are always trying to do here like right. they're trying to come here and enact sharia law and it's like no no one's trying to do that but i can see why you're so paranoid of that because that's what your fucking government does to everyone <laughs> right um so anyways they surrounded the the queen's palace with uh about 120 marines they set up a rapid fire gatling gun pointed at her palace and they also surrounded mr stevens house to make sure he was good and safe and at that point even though she had people that were willing to fight for her she decided that she did not want to see her people suffer bloodshed and she gave up so stevens and his coup plotters uh, declared themselves the provisional government of Hawaii. And this 13-member committee, they called the Committee of Safety, um, was also uh, chaired by Henry Cooper and Sanford B. Dole, which if you see the word, the name Dole, you probably think of Dole Pineapples, which is definitely where that came from. Dole Pineapples? Dole Pineapples. I thought, made, I thought they produced bananas. They, they do have bananas, too, but hmm. the pineapples were grown in Hawaii. 
Not at this time, but later on. So um, at the time in the United States, uh, President Harrison was in office and he approved the provisional government. And, but before it could get through the Senate, um, Grover Cleveland was elected. And Grover Cleveland was an anti-imperialist. And uh, so what he did was he, he rescinded the treaty between this provisional government of Hawaii and the United States. So, yeah, I really want to find out what the heck happened here. So he commissioned a, an inquiry, which was called the Blount Inquiry, to determine what exactly happened in the coup. And after it was all investigated, he came to the conclusion that, uh, yeah, this was BS. And Stevens was acting without the approval of the State Department. With, he was just acting on his own. And so he said, uh, President Cleveland said that the monarch was to be restored. So, which is kind of shocking that, you know, you did have the President of the United States saying, Actually having values. <laughs> actually having values. Yeah, and saying, like, this is BS. Yeah, I mean, seriously, like, our entire premise of becoming a country was that we didn't want to be ruled by a king anymore. You know, we wanted to be our own people and to be free. And then what do we do? We just turn around and invade other people's lands and try to take over and, you know, basically dictate everything they can do. I mean, it's, it's not... Of American values. Right. And it it actually, it's funny that you say that because I have a speech here later that was by one of the congressmen that exactly made that exact point. Well, and that's where, that's, I feel that was the slow downfall there is when people in our government stopped doing that, stopped saying, hold up a minute, even though this could benefit us, Mm -hmm. it does not represent our values. When politicians stopped doing that, it was the, it was the downfall of our country. Right. Exactly. So when... Grover Cleveland said the monarchy was to be be restored. This is this will really get your goat. Um, um, Sanford Dole, who was now the president of the provisional government, said that he was not returning power to the queen because the United States had no right to interfere with his sovereign government. <laughs> I mean, that's just like dictator. That's just like the. The, the uh, what do you call that? Hypocrisy of all hypocrisy. So you go over there, you take over somebody else's country and say, like, hey, I'm the ruler from, now. We're from America. We're going to take over your country. And, and then, then somebody comes to you and says, hey, like, remember when you took over this country using our neighbor ships and our people? Right. Well, we didn't approve that. So we're now going to take it back over and give it back to them. And they're like, no, it's our government. Now. Yeah. Like, what? <laughs> None of that. But was that guy a Republican? He was. He definitely was. He was a corporatist, I know that. So he was a Republican. (laughs) Well, it's kind of weird because Republicans and Democrats, like, switched parties, sort of. There was some point at which, like, part of the platform of the Democratic Party and the Republican Party Yeah, because everybody's always like, oh, Abraham Lincoln was a Republican. Right, and And then the Southern "Mm -hmm." Democrats, like, the really super hardcore racist segregationists were Democrats. But then after that, like, it seems like they switched. I don't know. It's so weird. Um. So anyways, at that point, Grover Cleveland was like, well, I really don't want to use military force to fight the provisional government. So uh, Lilia Galani and her supporters la- launched her own counter-revolution in a- 1895. And uh, several people died in the failed attempt to get rid of the provisional government. And um, 350 people were arrested, including the queen, and she was forced to abdicate the throne. So she spent like eight months in prison. And then after that, she traveled to the United States, and she 
uh, she was a highly educated person, and she tried to go to Congress and make her case that this was wrong, and and uh, there was a lot of debate in the Congress about the uh, overthrow of Hawaii and um, the annexation and what that could mean. And it's really it's really fascinating reading. At least it was to me, but I am a freaking nerd, so I'll admit that. But the debate, if you read the congressional debates that were going on, you had sugar planters in the South, right? They didn't want Hawaii annexed because as they long as they didn't want competition, they didn't want competition. Right. As long as it was a foreign country, they could charge them import tax on their sugar. Right. But if they became part of the United States, they wouldn't be able to do that, this and it is, was competition. It just seems like okay, maybe maybe hindsight's twenty twenty. So when you read back in history, it seems like so obvious that this was an awful idea. But I don't. I just don't know how people can look at that and debate that somehow it was right or that they deserve to go in there and take that. Mm-hmm. I mean, who? I mean, that would be like if. Well, I don't know. I'm sure there are people in our country today that if we invaded Mexico and just said this is ours now and we're gonna kill as many of you as we have to to say this is our land now, there probably would be people back in. Well, that we up. kind of. We kind of do that still to this day. I mean, we use a lot of propaganda. Like I said, we're in that third phase now where we well, use Well, I mean, we, we invade a lot of people and, you know, control their governments to get what we want from them. But, like, we literally took Hawaii and we're like, okay, this is part of the United States now. Right. Like, this is it. Right. This is ours now. Well, like I said, this was the age of open imperialism. And you still had the Spanish Empire in Cuba. You still had the Philippines controlled by Spain. You had Vietnam was run by the, by the French. So it was the it was the age of colonialism. Every empire was going out. Yeah, it's just funny that America likes to these. pretend that we weren't part of an empire that did that. Right. Like, no, we were the ones who escaped the British Empire, created our own country. Well, no, you just became your own. Right. Exactly. They I did. mean, yeah, we do have a lot of propaganda in this country that makes us. Now there were people that argued against it, but like I said, some of the people argued because of competition. Other people argued, and there's the most racist speech ever in the book Stephen Kinzer's Overthrow, and I, I meant to look it up so I could read part of it. But basically, this congressman gets on the House floor and says, stop and think about what you're going to do here. You're going to annex Hawaii, which has a bunch of non-white people in it. You're going to bring into the United States an entire populace of non-white people. And then you know what's going to happen? They're going to want to vote. And then if they get the right to vote, then you know what could happen someday? We might be sitting here in Congress, and you might have to look over and say, yes, Mr. Honorable so-and-so from Fiji. And, like, this guy was, like, so disgusted with the idea of looking around Congress and seeing faces that were... Not white men. Not white people. Oh, and he God. was f- having a meltdown. Like, his whole speech was just about that. Like, we don't want to assume any other cultures that are not white. How do we... That- <laughs> That that crushes my hope that one day we'll be we will be a place that doesn't have that kind of attitude because, oh my God, that was so long ago, and yet we still have people that act like that. Right. So anyway, to your point, there was a congressman by the name of Charles Nelson Clark, and I came across a speech that he made, and I just wanted to share part of it. So he says, the cornerstone of this republic is the proposition enunciated by Thomas Jefferson, the chief priest, apostle, and prophet of constitutional liberty. Governments derive their just powers from the consent of the governed. If that proposition is not true, then the American Revolution was a monstrous crime. Washington, Warren, Montgomery, Green, Marion, and all that band of heroes 
were turbulent traitors to King George. John Hancock, old John Adams, Patrick Henry, Richard Lee, Henry Lee, and their congressional compeers, persistent disturbers of the peace. And all the blood shed in our two wards with Great Britain was wanton and wicked waste. If that proposition is not true, William McKinley this day is exercising functions usurped from the body, and this body is composed of mouthy brawlers doing unlawfully those things which the English House of Commons has the sole right to do. This annexation scheme is in flagrant violation of the basic principles of our republic. For many thousand Hawaiians, more than the entire male adult population have solemnly protested against the sale and delivery of their country to us by a little gang of adventurers who claiming to be the whole thing are offering to us property which they have robbed the rightful owners. And now America, which has been solemnly declared by the Supreme Court to be a Christian land, is made to be the receiver of stolen Hawaiian goods. If an ordinary citizen receives stolen goods, he commits a penitentiary offense. Wherein I beg to leave inquiry, what is the difference of principle between in stealing ordinary property and in stealing an island or a group of islands or in receiving them after they are stolen? The only justification lies in the thievish theory that if the theft is big enough, it ceases to be a crime and takes on the character and complexion of virtue and that the perpetrators thereof, instead of being consigned to the striped uniforms, cramped quarters, meager diet, and hard labor of felons, are to be hailed as statesmen and rewarded with applauds of a grateful people, a theory which, I regret to say, is growing in this country. And he goes on and on to say, like, basically, what are we talking about here? We came here to be a country of free people, to vote in Can our you leaders. Imagine? I mean, that... that can you imagine that today? Yes. I mean, that what what a brilliant speech, first of all. Yes, it is. And, and then it just makes so much sense. <clears throat> it's undeniable that that is exactly why we came here. Exactly. And made our own way. And yet, if a crime is big enough, yes, then those people are no longer criminals. Exactly. I mean, that, and that's exactly how it is now. And it's like polite society, like George Bush goes and invades Iraq and kills like a million people. And it's like, well, he's still treated like he, polite society. You know, it, it's like these people don't have any accountability for the things that they do. You know, oh, people yeah, complain about a, them when they're in office and then they get out of office. And then it's all of a sudden like, oh, we forgive everything. Right. Like you're still a great president now. Yeah. I don't understand how that works. Just like I was telling you last week about how I saw Michelle Obama preaching and posing in pictures with George Bush. And I was like, yeah, elite's gonna elite because <laughs> um, he's a fucking war criminal. You know, and people criticize Ellen DeGeneres for going to a baseball game with him and they're like, oh, blah, blah, blah. And I was like, no, again, elite's gonna elite. Fuck you, Ellen. You yeah. act like you <clears throat> care about people. That man is a murderer. He's and a plus, war criminal. The thing, that, the thing that people in her own community got upset about because he was against gay rights, gay people being married. Right, yeah, absolutely. And so they're like, what, what a hypocrite. I mean, because it doesn't affect you because you're a rich person. Like, well, it just, it's awful. Yeah. It's fucking awful. How did you sit next to that man in a baseball game and just treat him like he's any other human being? Mm -hmm. No, fuck that. We don't even do that in our own communities, you know? Some dude gets out of prison for robbing somebody else's house or being a child molester. We don't just welcome them back into the community like, hey, no problem, Joe. 
We yeah. fucking hate them and we outcast them and we make them register to shit so we can outcast them in other communities. Like, we don't fucking like them, but yet, president can do all that shit. Cool, he was a good president. Like, the crime's big when? enough. When? When the was he a good president? Enough. Like, so then to read a couple more lines of the speech, it really is a good speech. Uh, the petitions that were being signed by the Hawaiian people protesting about their country being stolen, the the propagandists, the businessmen were saying, all oh, those signatures are just, those are just made up. Of course, it's fake news, right? <laughs> this was the first fake God, news. you really can't make this shit up, can you? <laughs> he says, but the jingos, which is what he, how they, why they talk about jingoism, about going, you know, being the usurpers. But the jingos tell us this protest of the Hawaiians is all bogus, gotten up by designing knaves, and that the Hawaiians are falling all over each other in their eagerness for annexation. If this is true, why not submit this annexation scheme to a popular vote in Hawaii, as was done in the case of Texas? That would be fair and would remove one difficulty. Certainly, Mr. Sanford B. Dole could guarantee that every vote in favor of annexation would be counted at least once. <laughs> Does he or do his sponsors here shrink from the test of Hawaiian manhood suffrage on that proposition? If a fair election on that proposition cannot be had, what assurance have we that fair elections can be had hereafter if we annex these islands? If the Hawaiians are not fit to vote on a proposition of vital interest to themselves, who will have the effrontery to say that they are fit to vote for all coming time on propositions of vital interest to us and our posterity? So, I mean, he's like saying, like, you're saying they can't even vote on their own future of whether they self-govern. So this is this but is the you, thing that confuses me is because everything that you've said so far um, makes it seem like that there was some logic in this situation and that people recognized how wrong what they were doing sure. was. So how did we end up with the outcome that we just still took them and told them too fucking bad? I'm going to get to that. So, you know, there were some people who were arguing that they should have the right to, not very many. Like I said, most of the people that were voting against annexation were doing it for selfish reasons. But there were some people like this gentleman who actually made a really, really good argument for them to govern themselves. And obviously Grover Cleveland was against it. Um, but what happened was in 1898, we got involved in the <clears throat> Spanish-American War. So we needed Hawaii as a place to refuel our ships to go to the Philippines. So that's what eventually threw the, the debate over the edge and pretty much just it was important to national security. Plus, Grover Cleveland wasn't the president then. Um, he was elected out of office, and the, the incoming president, McKinley, was in favor of annexation. So a lot of it was just like shifting. You know, if you look at the fact that the first president was for annexation and actually said, oh, yeah, I'm going to recognize the provisional government, then he gets elected out, and then Cleveland comes in and is like, no, this is BS. Like, they have a right to rule themselves and starts this inquiry and does all this, and then they're on the brink of maybe maybe not being annexed, and then Cleveland gets voted out and McKinley gets voted in. Doesn't it just seem like a, like an oxymoron or something, though? Like an American president for annexation. I, I mean, that's not, it's, com it's completely contradictory, is it not? Like, Well, not really, because we, we, in the beginning, they had, you know, part of our country was the Monroe Doctrine, which was the idea that uh, James Monroe was a president who said that the United States has a right to 
basically assert itself anywhere in the Western Hemisphere to protect ourselves. We have a right to basically tell Cuba what to do, Mexico. I mean, it's ridiculous, but that was a very accepted I just, that doesn't thought make any process sense at all. <laughs> at what the time. A load. So yes. here's, an, here's the last part of that speech. So all the machinery of elections is in the hands of the little coterie of oligarchs. That's a buzzword now, isn't it? Mm-hmm. And here it is being used back then. They are able, resolute, and ambitious men. They can be relied upon to see that, see to it that every annexation voter votes and that his vote is counted. They can also be relied upon to see to it that it is not an unlawful vote that is cast against the scheme of annexation, for their fortunes depend upon annexation. Can anything then be more just? Is, the, is President Dole afraid of the verdict of his own people? I pause for reply. <laughs> and apparently nobody in Congress had shit to say to this great speech. He said, none of his friends can answer, so I'll answer myself. He cannot be induced to submit this scheme to a popular manhood suffrage vote for the very good reason that he knows that he and his friends hold office through usurpation and that the vast majority of the Hawaiian people are bitterly opposed to him and all his works. He is he's the friend of liberty is he well how come how, how does it happen then that while under the monarchy of 14,000 persons who are permitted to vote only 2,800 are given the elective franchise under the oligarchy so he's saying that you know they changed the, they already changed the constitution to reduce their their rights you know and even in still he's afraid for, to let them vote oh absolutely I don't know how I, I mean I understand that they are there are protocols and things in order then that I'm not familiar with at all but it seems like the common sense thing would be listen you went in here claiming that we were backing you and took these people over and now you're being a dictator right you think he'd be so arrested we're gonna, yeah, we're gonna <laughs> arrest you you stupid asshole you're done it is shocking that that thought I mean can you if that's like if I <clears throat> went to the White House and walked in with a fake ID and told everybody I belonged there. And then went in there and like fucked with a bunch of shit. <laughs> and the security cable was like, you're not supposed to be in here. And it's like, well, now that I got in here and fucked with this shit, you can't make me leave. I'm like, the president now. I am the president now. <laughs> I moved to this furniture, so I, I'm the president now. Like, <laughs> no. <laughs> what the fuck? Uh, Why was nothing done? I don't understand. They should have just stormed in there and arrested that dude and been like, we're so sorry queen yeah here's your land back like what a load of horseshit yeah so but like i said in 1898 uh a grover cleveland successor william mckinley um did annex hawaii because they wanted it as a refueling outpost how convenient yeah so um and then in 1900 there was a debate over the the issue of how much land uh, the corporation should be allowed to own in Hawaii. It was called the Hawaii Organic Act. And it was in the 1900s. And this gentleman, Mr. Newlands, I came across this, and I thought it was interesting because if you read this, you'll see how relevant it is to today because we kind of get this two-dimensional uh, perspective of our founding fathers and all these uh, congressmen and senators. Like, we see how they fight today, but we're like, oh, but back then they pretty much all got along and thought the same things, and that's just highly not true. <laughs> so, uh, Mr. Newland says, 
um, he, he says that, uh, I'll just read here what he says. It is a protest against a system of land monopoly that has grown up in the Philippine Islands, of which the religious organizations of those islands are the beneficiaries. Now, that is a question as old as time. And if we look at the economic causes of most of the wars that have visited the world, we will find at the bottom of almost every war a protest against the monopoly of land. It has led to the French Revolution. The, the land of France prior to the revolution was held one-third by the nobility, one-third by the church, and the other, uh, the poorer third, was held by the masses of people, and the taxes were all imposed on the poorer third. That, that's led to the revolution of blood and the carnival of destruction. Puerto Rico uh, today is one of the most thickly inhabited islands in the world. A million people occupying an, in, an island uh, 100 miles long and 40 miles wide. The holdings of the land of that island today are comparatively small, but freer trade with the United States and the commercial advantage gained by access to our markets will give great advance to the value of those lands and we'll see a gradual centralization and concentration of ownership in the hands of a few unless we restrain it now. If we do not guard it by legislation, we will have 900,000 or a million people on those islands without a foot of land which they can call their own. All of them serfs attached to the soil, subject to the control of the landlords. The reason why we are in a war in the Philippines is being waged today is that the vast tracts of land are held by the religious organizations of Luzon, in whose hands they have been gradually concentrated. And the Filipinos, though devoted to the church, have been repeatedly in revolt against the system and have demanded its reform. They are at war with the United States largely because they believe our government will maintain and protect this monopoly. So here's this guy pointing out the fact that just like in Hawaii, you get this minority of people who takes over like four-fifths of the land. You leave all the poor people without any way to farm and maintain their own, uh, you know, their own well-being. So then they have to go work for these, these collective farms and, and they get treated like slaves. So there were a lot of people back then who argued these points. But like you're saying, it was always the economically advantageous people that ended up winning in the end. Yeah, and that's the that's the thing that shocks me the most, I guess, is, well, I guess not shocks me, really, but aggravates me, is that I feel like throughout history that there are people, quote-unquote, fighting the good fight, you know, and bringing up the, the correct way to look at something. I mean, I, I'm sure that if that situation were to happen today, um, that we didn't own Hawaii, and in the year 2019, we decided that we're going to go in there and we're going to take it. I'm sure that there would be people who supported it, but it just, why is it always the guy that comes and says, listen, this is not what our country was founded on. This is not right, and this is not what our people believe in. Um, that just gets walked on. Well, no I, think it's because the, I think it's because the inner workings of government have always been, you know, the, the corporate interests, the hot, the extremely wealthy, the families that have all the wealth. They're the ones that are, are actually driving the mechanisms of government, not the people. And we're fighting that same thing today. So I, that's why I wanted to go over this. And, you know, we're, we're going to try to keep it to our, our hour today. Um, but this could be like a whole series of things. Um, the, the next series of things we got involved in, the United States got involved in, was what's called the Banana Wars. And these were all involving Central American countries uh, because people in America took a liking to bananas. Somebody brought some bananas up. And so, uh, you know, this United Fruit Company um, began to buy up land 
in uh, you know Guatemala and Nicaragua, the, the Central American countries, and grow bananas and sugar and other other crops, and uh, transport them out. And uh, the United Fruit Company, at one point, um, they own they own these huge tracts of land. So again, you have all the land that's concentrated in the hands of a few. They controlled the railroads, the docks, the communication systems. Uh, and it, and it, they became, by 1900, they were the larger, largest exporter of bananas in the entire world. Um, and they had a monopoly over, over Guatemala, just like the, the uh, people in Hawaii, the corporatists in Hawaii, got a monopoly over the government there. And uh, the, a journalist at the time, William Blum, said that uh, United Fruits' uh, role inside of Guatemala was a state within a state. So they, that's how much control they had. And then to add to that, there was a global demand for coffee, and that was something that could be grown in Guatemala. So the leader uh, during the, uh, this time was uh, Manuel Cabrera, and he was more than happy to work with the United Fruit Company and give them pretty much whatever they wanted. Yeah, he passed legislation that dispossessed the communal land holdings of the indigenous people and allowed coffee growers to buy it. Um, he sent armed forces to make sure that, you know, people were not, the laborers weren't getting any kind of rights. I mean, these, these, this is all the stuff that, ref, the stuff that was going on in the industrial age to workers here, like the coal miners, when they tried to rise up and get rights and they were, the, the military came out and, and enforced the corporate view, the people should own the military, but it's always the other way around. It's always the corporations that bring the military in to suppress the workers' rebellions. So in these outposts, in these countries where corporations began to branch out and become multinational, corp these were like the first multinational corporations, they wanted to co-opt whatever leader was going to give them whatever they wanted. So there were a couple of different uh, leaders of Guatemala who pretty much gave, you know, United Fruit whatever they wanted. But then, after the first couple of leaders, uh, and also I wanted to mention too that, you know, last week or the week before we talked about mind control, right? And we talked about the CIA and John Foster Dulles and Alan Dulles, the two brothers that were in the State Department and the, uh, Alan Dulles was the head of the CIA. Uh, well, they started out as attorneys, if you remember me right? saying yes. that. I remember, like corporate attorneys, right? Corporate attorneys. Mm -hmm. And guess who they worked for? United Fruit Company. <laughs> So before going on to become the State Department and CIA, head of the CIA, they worked as corporate lawyers for United Fruit Company and were actually helping them to establish these contracts with these governments to take over land of these indigenous peoples. So you can see, if you go back, the beginnings of all of this, how all of this came to be. So you got John Foster Dulles uh, representing United Fruit, negotiating contracts with Guatemalan officials, and this went on and on and on. Well, then uh, there came a guy who, basically the people eventually get tired of this, and they, they have a revolution. So there was a revolution, and uh, the president who came into power was, well, there was a couple different ones, but basically the one that really threw it over the top was uh, President Arbenz, and there was a president before him who, who wanted to do some kind of like workers' rights and kind of like he was brought in by the people saying we're tired of this kind of dictatorial regime, but
but he didn't go quite that far. And then there comes our Benz. So now we're up to 1950. And our Benz is the first person who's going to address the fact of land reform. Now, he didn't go all crazy. He wasn't like a total communist. But what he said was, you know, we need to take all the land that is owned by people that they're not using and redisperse it to people who have nowhere to live and nowhere to farm. So it only applied to really large, like if it was over 600 acres and you weren't using like 200 acres, it was really quite modest as far as like nobody was getting kicked out of their house, okay, for these land reforms. Uh, but that was just too much. That was just too much for United Fruit Company, and they just couldn't have that. So uh, John Foster Dulles, who, or I'm sorry, Alan Dulles, who had been the attorney, he's now in the government. And um, Henry, uh, President Harry Truman signed, uh, authorized for the CIA to do a coup. And it was called Operation Fortune. So uh, the coup was planned by United Fruit Company and uh, a, person by, a person by the name of Anastasio Somoza, uh, which a lot of people know, know that name, Somoza. He, was, he eventually was the one, who, the dictator who came in after Arbenz. Uh, and then it was also planned with uh, right-wing dictators of Nicaragua, the Dominican Republic, and Venezuela. So they get all these dictators together because the dicta other dictators in other places didn't like Guatemala all of a sudden starting to be democratic because then their people start getting like, hey, like Guatemalan people got freaking rights, like, what the fuck? Like, we don't want to live under a dictator. We want rights, too. So they were, like, really nervous about Guatemala people having democracy and having a vote and having land and shit. So they all got together with the CIA, with the United States, for Operation Fortune to overthrow our bands. So that's what they did. I just, you know, it brings <clears throat> me to my next, um, this next moment of Jukes, how the fuck did this happen? Um <laughs> You know, how do Americans have this idea that we are like this long history of a country that if you just work hard that you can become like a millionaire <laughs> business owner? Because the more and more I learned about some of these long-term mass companies that were there from the beginning, they basically just, you know, corrupted their way into power sure. and money. Yeah, they so it's like it. the whole American dream was always a fucking sham. Right. And yet we still spit that you know, propaganda that's been fed to us as if it's fact, when in reality, if you look back at, like, any major corporation, there's some kind of fucking corrupt bullshit that is what led them to their success. Sure. It's not through hard work and no. fucking pulling up your bootstraps. It's about exploiting other people. Absolutely. And using the government Absolutely. to help you do it. Like, it makes why me do we still preach that? Like, like that's somehow the truth. I mean... Well, Trump's... Uh, I forget what, he, whether, what his, what his uh, title is, but Cuccinelli... Is Trump's like immigration czar or something? I don't know what his title is, but his his name's Cuccinelli. But anyway, he he came out with this BS about the immigrant uh, Trump restricting the immigration, saying that you know when his family came here, they came with skills and they worked hard. And like I can't say about his family, but all I'm saying is just like you're saying, the whole myth that white men came here and they worked hard to have everything they have and did everything on their own is just a load of horseshit. It's just a lie. Yeah, they stole things from people. They forced other people to do slave labor for them. You know, I Right, mean, and it's like we're, we're getting to this point, and people argue this with me all the time because I'm a big, uh, big preacher of, you know, eat the rich. 
and people are like, oh, well, they uh, they worked hard for what they have. And I'm just like, anybody who owns a billion-dollar corporation in America either got there by inheritance from a company that exploited people and broke laws, or they're just continuing to exploit people and find loopholes. I mean, still to this day, Jeff Bezos is the biggest one. They just talk about like, oh, well, Amazon does this for its employees and this and that. And it's just like, yeah, but you still pay them wages where they have to be on welfare, where you cut their hours so that they don't have health insurance. And, like, you're still a fucking slime ball. Yeah, you know I don't mean? know how much still, Jeff Bezos has reformed Amazon. I mean, their still, commercials seem to seem like they're, you know, yeah. doing some reforms, but I don't well, know. Well, so did Walmart, too. When Walmart was like, oh, we're going to start paying our employees $11 an hour, and then they work you, like, 10 hours a week so they yeah. don't have to give you benefits. I mean, personally, when I worked at Walmart, they only paid people $9 an hour, which was still more than minimum wage, but still not enough to live on, even in our podunk state. You know what I mean? We're fucking poor here. Yeah. $9 an yeah. hour should have meant something, but it didn't. Yeah. And they, for for three weeks, they would work me 38 hours. Mm-hmm. And then on that fourth week, they'd cut me down to 10. Yeah. So they didn't have to give me benefits. And I'm like, yeah. as long as companies are still allowed to do this bullshit, yeah. you're still making billion dollars off of exploiting people who have exactly. to work Exactly. And here's what's funny about Walmart is because... You know, people talk about welfare recipients with all this disdain, but but Walmart tells their employees how to get Medicaid and food stamps. So what Walmart is saying is that we're a multi-billion dollar corporation, but we don't want to have to pay for you to have health care and, and, and enough to eat. So we're going to take all the tax breaks and we're going to pay you shit and we're going to have your paycheck, your life is going to be subsidized by the government. Right. Because we're too cheap to pay you for it. That's what makes me mad. You know, right, exactly. It, and, you know, they talk about, people talk about raising the wages of Walmart will just raise the price of their goods. Again, well, then that should come back on Walmart. And if we had any kind of a backbone in our country, we would start boycotting places like that. Um, but we but won't. where is she going to shop, though? Because they've, taken, they've dri- driven everything else out of business. And it, there, that is, a, in some areas, like ours, um, that's kind of a privileged statement to say, we'll just boycott and shop somewhere else. And I feel that because... I'm a poor person. I don't have the option to just choose to boycott a lot of times. If I'm mm-hmm. if I'm down on my last $20, I got to go where I can get the most stuff. Right. You know what I mean? So I recognize that fact too. But it's just like, okay, so we the people are in a position at this point where we can't even boycott to show that we don't support what's going on here, which should be where our government steps in and says, listen, this is not right. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? You all worried about people raising, the, Walmart raising the prices of things, but you don't realize that you're already subsidizing you know, you're already wasting your tax dollars right. on having to provide for these people mm-hmm. rather than just, you know, paying the couple extra dollars when you go grocery shopping if Walmart chooses to raise the price. But that's where it all comes down to. And I know we're supposed to be like free market country, but when it comes to necessities and the companies basically hold us all hostage, like, well, we'll just dominate and become a monopoly, which Walmart basically has. Um, as much as we're not supposed to allow that, they, they're basically a monopoly in a lot of areas, especially in West Virginia, we have Walmart and Kroger. That's about right. it. There's no yeah. competition because we're poor. Um, they just, they just hold us hostage with, well, you want your people to have a decent wage? Then we'll just charge you so much for a gallon of milk that you can't afford to eat anymore. Like, yeah, which is not really, right. non- it really is nonsense too. I mean, honestly, because, uh, they could afford to pay their people without raising the price of goods. That's oh, just absolutely. a lie. That's they could, and lie. it is a lie. And that's what kills me is that people will sit back and say, well, what do you want Walmart to charge $5 for a gallon of milk or whatever? And it's like, okay, but why are you putting that blame on me as a person who just wants to be paid a decent wage right. and not putting that on the corporation? I mean, as far as people coming here and working and working their way up, I mean, you know, generational wealth, if your family, you know, works and saves their money and buys a house and does like, I mean, 
my family came here from Ireland. They were all, most of them were coal miners, the ones that came here. And the ones that were grew up out of the dirt in Virginia, the other side of my family, I think they were all coal miners too. But, I mean, that was pretty much like unskilled labor people, what they did. They mined coal. So, or built railroads. Some of my family did that too. But over time, like of using their money and, and you know, be always working hard and saving and paying for a house, like eventually... You know, we did improve. We don't live in houses with dirt floors anymore. I mean, there probably are some people in the United States that still live in that condition, but I'm saying, like, the idea of working hard and improving your status, yes, but like you're saying, to get to be a billionaire, like, it's just uh, old money or a whole lot of exploitation. Well, and I think there's a certain amount that people never want to recognize this, and I understand that that it is a, it's, it's a point that's, that's somewhat hard for me to argue because I feel like when you are down in the dirt that you should be willing to do anything you can to get out of that situation but at the same time it's not necessarily realistic Mm -hmm. because I think about a lot of times um, like in lower West Virginia especially where there are a lot of really really heavily poverty-stricken areas and people say well just move somewhere else and it's like okay on one hand I see that argument because it's like well you could move and get a job somewhere else but at the same time what kind of fucking country are we that we have this much growth and this much wealth, and yet we have to force people to move away from their lives and their hometowns and their families. Only thing they've got or have ever had, you have to abandon it in hopes that you'll be able to work hard enough to eventually save yourself and the rest of your family from that poverty-stricken hell. Mm-hmm. Really? Do we have to force people to be in those positions in this day and age with all the wealth that we have? It's fucking mm-hmm. bullshit. Yeah. It's mismanagement. It is. It really is mismanagement. And that's what, I, I don't want to quote it because I, I haven't done my own research on it. And I, I don't want to just take it as fact. I've read it at a couple places, but they say that out of your tax dollars, the average person only pays about $40 into like SNAP benefits or whatever, because people are under the impression that most of their tax dollars goes to welfare, when in reality it goes to like military and, you know, all, all kinds of other government spending. And I think about that. I don't know what the exact amount are, but it is true that much, much more of your tax dollars go to military and social security. Yes, military, social security, um, um, things like of that nature, not welfare, mm-hmm. not welfare right. programs. So it's like you're not even mad at the right people. You know what I mean? Right. Like those people just I, I've never I've, I hear these stories all the time about the infamous welfare queen. Mm-hmm. And I've literally never met anyone who is just happy being poor and on welfare. Right. I I've mean, never met that. It's it's a it's a failed system. I mean, you when you're on it, if you try to better yourself, you're literally uh, just treading water. Because for every amount you make, they take something away from you. So you're just never. I mean, you're just always caught in between. But um, yeah, but the money is there. It's not like our country is shy on land or money or housing. Yeah. I mean, basically all of the problems that we face, if managed correctly could be fixed and we just are like oh you go to how much debt are we into china and for what yeah i mean look at all the shit that we import into this country and for what mm-hmm. it's not a necessity so much of it isn't a necessity i mean i just i'm so sick of the waste and the greed in this country when the resources are there right well and the speaking of the military we just uh the democrats and republicans one thing they can always agree on is funding that military budget and they just they just funded another increase in the military budget and still have not addressed the issue about the wars that Congress has not approved. So back to your point on that. 
Okay, so the Somoza family in Nicaragua that we helped to put in power through the coup was in power for more than four decades. And uh, they accumulated wealth through corporate bribes, industrial monopolies, land grabbing, and foreign aid siphoning. By the 1970s, they owned one quarter of the land in Nicaragua, and the family wealth reached $533 million. So, that's pretty crazy. And, uh, like I said, these the United Fruit Company was one of, if you, you can find whole books that have been written about United Fruit Company and what they did, and um, interestingly, they became like the Chiquita Bananas, like later, like they went through a company, couple different, uh, what do you call it, mergers, they became like United Brands Company or something, and then uh, they became Chiquita Brand Bananas, and in 2007... Which is like, but not like that long ago. Pretty recent, yeah. Chiquita Bananas pled guilty in the United States federal court to aiding and abetting a terrorist organization because it admitted uh, to paying more than $1.7 million to the United Self Defense Forces of Colombia to protect its, quote, interests down there. Yeah, and it had to pay uh, $25 million in restitution and damages to the families of victims of the terrorists oh, because my God. they kidnapped people, they beheaded people, they were, there were death squads. Yeah, they were they were like the horrible of horrible groups, and Chiquita Banana yeah, employed this them. Is, this is probably why I'm such a miserable <laughs> person, because I go to the grocery store and I pick up a banana, and I'm like, how many people died Like, I you? didn't know that, right? Like, I didn't even know that. You know what I mean? We so. talk about... In America, like, oh, you have to be careful about the plastics that you use because it hurts the environment. And I'm, like, looking at fruit, like, did anyone die for this fruit? <laughs> I don't know if I can eat this. Like, I know. I downloaded the app on my phone that was supposed to tell you, like, responsible consumer things. There's you can no. Scan it, and it doesn't not. work. It no, work. listen. That's a good <laughs> idea, but there is no conscious consumerism in America anymore. Yeah, there just isn't. Seriously. People get on me all the time for being a Beatles fan, and they're like, how, how can you be a Beatles fan knowing what John Lennon did? And I'm just like, can you shut the fuck up? Just... <laughs> Let people enjoy things because everything is is awful. There's uh, nothing is sacred, the, which is except for one thing, which is dogs. And I always like to make that point. Dogs, dogs are innocent. Sacred. They're just That's innocent. Cats, I don't know. Cats are kind of devious. I think cats want to kill us all. I don't know. I That's why they uh, run into your feet when you walk down the steps. It's like is, their goal to kill all people. This is this is a, a heated debate on the Mima Supremus because <laughs> two of our. Um, Two of our hosts are cat people, and uh, my boyfriend and I are dog people. So, you know, that could, that could go all night. But, uh, yeah. yeah, dogs are innocent, and that's what I want to add to the end of this conversation <laughs> is that basically everyone is shit, and uh, just adopt a dog and stay in your house. That's what I'm about to do for the rest of the year. <laughs> so we have uh, just a real quick before we close out um not going to go through all these but like in 1953 we had a coup in iran where we overthrew the democratically elected leader uh muhammad mosaddegh and that was over oil because bp was basically raping the country they got in there and got good deals and i think i think the iranians were getting like 10 percent of the oil profit from their oil i'm just shocked though I mean, england we was know. getting like the rest we and they were know. just like hey dude like can we get a leader that will give us more than 10% of our own fucking oil profits? So then, like, they had, like, a revolution, and then they got Mosaddegh, and then we, like, got rid of him. Like, we know that oil companies are evil, but I'm just a fucking banana company. <laughs> fucking banana wars. 
death a pineapple stole pineapple bastard good lord so then uh 1961 there was a bay of pigs invasion that was against cuba we had multiple like attempts to assassinate cuba or to assassinate castro Castro, all kind of stuff there uh that was just over pretty much they him being a communist and whatever that he didn't even have anything we wanted yeah, I mean, ter- he, we didn't like the fact that he's 90 miles off the coast of Florida. and I mean, there's a big thing about that, but we'll go into that another time. And then 1973, we did a coup in Chile against Salvador Allende. So, and then uh, that was over material stuff, too. I think copper and some different industries that we, we had business people had interest in Chile, and we didn't like that. Allende was also a for the people, going to use the resources of the country for the people. Can't have that. Not allowed. And then in 1981-1985, Ronald Reagan did the Iran-Contra Wars, which was in Nicaragua. And that was the Congress, what you were talking about, Congress uh, said, no, we're not funding that. Right, yeah. Earlier when I referenced to our country and its habits of shitting on the Constitution, I was specifically referencing the fact that uh, Congress has to approve when we go into, you know, start a war. Mm-hmm. And, like, we frequently start wars that we don't But we don't, don't have call them wars. Yeah, we don't call them wars. They're but military that's, actions. That's what they are. Yes, right. You know? Exactly. Because we don't need the approval of Congress for just military mm-hmm. action. But that's what I was referring to, which... Yes. And the last one on my list, I mean, there's, like I said, there's 81 different countries we could go through where the United States has tried to overthrow or has overthrown governments. But in 2002, we tried to do a coup in Venezuela, and it went, it went really, really bad. So we kidnapped Chavez. Um, we, our news media people said he resigned. We kidnapped him. Yeah, isn't this the one where the people were like, give us our fucking leader yes. back? Like, so they, <laughs> people rioted in the streets, and actually the military that was loyal to the CIA was able to get like people around him, a couple people around him to defect and like take to like arrest him. And they took him into custody. But the actual soldier there was a lot of soldiers loyal to Chavez and they overtook the presidential palace and took the new guy that we put in there and we're like, they took him hostage. And we're like, you want this guy alive? Then give us Chavez back. So they took their leader back. So it was a literally a totally failed coup against Venezuela. That's awesome, though, because, I mean, that's awesome. Which I think that's why they, we're afraid to actually go in there. Like, we're trying to do this whole propaganda war. He must have had a pretty good approval rating, considering those people are like, we're going to defect against our new government and take this guy hostage to save our old leader because yes. that's how loyal we are. Like, right. That is a level of loyalty I feel like the United States just doesn't know. Yeah. So someday we'll cover Venezuela coup, but for today, I just wanted to, I'm really glad we got to go into de- detail on Hawaii because a lot of people don't realize all that history about Hawaii. Yeah, maybe we'll pick this up next week to go in more detail about the topics that we also have up here on the board, but didn't only got to briefly touch on. Yeah, but, but American Empire, it's a long, sad, sad history and still going on today. Yike. <laughs> no end in sight. <laughs> But anyway, um, so yeah, tune in next week, and we're going to, I don't know what topics we'll come up with, um, probably be talking about the Senate vote, um, we'll see, I don't know when exactly, what date that's supposed to happen exactly, but, um, and then we'll touch on these topics we only got to briefly discuss today, but as always, you can find us on Twitter at Project99Cast, we always love to hear you guys' feedback, um, our podcast is available anywhere, please share it uh, with your friends on different pages. Uh, We've been seeing pretty consistent viewership, so thank you all for that. Definitely appreciate it. Um, But we always want to hear from you guys, so you can send us an email, get at us on Twitter, whatever's most convenient. Um, But uh, with that, we will be back next week. This is Juke signing off. 
and this is mixed. Oh.